Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, you know, it took uh, three days, but we finally got to uh, biology, which I think, uh, as you'll see, is uh, the, the messiest of the, 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 the three sciences that we're going to talk about. And for me, the most, uh, most interesting, obviously. And um, I, it's interesting, I think, uh, when we talked about physics in particular, and just chemistry to some extent, there, there's this idea that we have this really good, um, the mathematical relationships we know really well, but do the entities exist, do the bonds exist? And I think in biology, sort of the opposite. We're pretty sure that bacteria exist, we're pretty sure you all exist, but what are the mathematical relationships? How do I predict how you or how a bacteria and so forth is going to respond? Um, and, and that's where a lot of the uh, uncertainty is. Um, so the, the talk, I'm going to focus on two um, aspects of uncertainty. And the first is the ability to predict um, and the limitations of, of, of prediction of what an organism um, is going to do. So, hey, here's the initial state that we find the organism in. Um, how do we predict what it might do given these conditions, right? And what are the limitations to that? And I think that, that they're severely limited um, uh, and, and that there's a, a very high degree of uncertainty that we'll never be able to overcome. And I think part of that, the reason, has to do with the novelty that's inherent in biological evolution. And I think so you, you, you can't have absolute certainty biology because you do need these surprises, this variability that you need for producing novelty in evolution. The second um, as part of the talk, I'll focus on another aspect um, that um, uh, of uncertainty, which is sort of the naming problem in biology, and sort of uh, looking at how do you di define things. Um, and so, like a gene, we know what a, you know the genes exist, but what is it? Right? And and you see, it's very difficult to come up with a name for a, a definition that actually works in practice. And it doesn't mean then that genes don't exist, but there's some uncertainty around the edges. Of, of, of what they of what they are, which goes to uh, a little bit what Dr. Watson was talking about uh, earlier in chemistry, right? And then, uh, in particular, the species problem, which is probably the biggest area of where you have this this naming issue. Okay. Um, now, uh, the first slide. So, you know, uncertainty in sciences and in biology is really a hot topic. Um, so, uh, particularly in the last five years, and particularly in biology. So. Uh, the reproducibility crisis that we talk about in, in the sciences, and particularly in the life sciences. So uh, there was, in 2016, a, uh, a survey that Nature magazine did of uh, research scientists, and they surveyed over 1,500 scientists, and they asked them, um, have you had difficulty uh, reproducing results from another lab? And over 70% of them said that they did. What I find even more interesting is over 50% said they had difficulty reproducing their own results. Okay, <laughs> um, and, and, um, and, and then there was, in, uh, just last year, there was this, this eight-year uh, project, a $2 million project, uh, to replicate uh, preclinical cancer research papers. Uh, and they found that roughly half of them they couldn't replicate. Right? Um, and so uh, if th there is this, you talk about uncertainty there. What did the text say for the bug test? 
So why is this? Um, you know, so, so obviously there are certain high-profile cases of fraud that you see that, that make the news every once in a while, but I think that's a, a, a small reason for this. Um, you, um, I think the bigger reason, particularly in the life sciences, is that it's very difficult to control all of the variables that actually feed into uh, outcomes of experimental research. Um, and uh, because, you know, in chemistry, we take a, 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 a molecule, take a, a ethanol, and I put it in the fridge, or I can leave it on the table, I come back the next day, it's still ethanol, it hasn't changed much. But if I take fruit flies that I'm studying, and I let them reproduce for a few generations, the population I'm not studying has changed a bit even if it has the same sort of mutation, you know, the mutation I might be studying. Same thing with the cells that I work with. Right? If I grow them for, you know, six passages, they're not identical to the cells that I had at passage one. So there's certain things that we just have a very difficult time, not a possible time, um, controlling uh, in biology. Um, and that, you know, part of, um, yeah, skip that one. Yeah, so it's like, uh, part of it is the complexity that you have in biology, right? Um, and things don't map on to each other equally. So, you know, a carbon molecule, a carbon atom is a carbon atom is a carbon atom. They all sort of map on top of each other. Ethanol is ethanol and all maps on top of each other. A protein, it, st it starts to get a little squiggly because they, they fold a little bit. Even the same protein might fold differently under different conditions. Even under the same conditions, you'll have some variability. But if you take a cell, right, and one E. coli does not map on top of another E. coli in any way that you can say carbon does the carbon. So you look at just at the complexity of a simple prokaryotic cell and you can see that it's relatively staggering, right? So you're looking at a cell that has maybe 4,000 genes, roughly, uh, depends on what you define a gene as, but you're looking at a couple million proteins. Now a lot of them are the same, but usually you have millions of proteins. You have tens of millions of lipid molecules, right, uh, that, that are there, not to mention, um, you know, another order of magnitude of the metabolites that, that are there in the cell, right? Um, and they are not um, just sort of randomly arranged, they're arranged in certain spatial um, and, and temporal um, uh, order there. Um, and, and, and so how do you, uh, how can you, how do you get the ability to predict uh, from this complexity. It seems like there's going to be a very difficult time predicting how a system like this is going to behave to some type of perturbation, right? Where is it going to go? Um, and I think is, is all, at the end, just that the, there's this freedom in a sense built into biological systems that is necessary for their survival and then allows for the evolutionary possibilities which is unpredictable to a large extent. Um, and, and that is part and parcel of what biological organisms um, are. Okay. So we've been talking a little bit about the weirdness of quantum uh, mechanics. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that uh, has uh, uh, 
spilled over into a sort of, a, you know, the scientific view that to really understand something, we don't need to worry about what it is, we just want to be able to model it. And this rise in sort of mathematical modeling in the sciences, particularly in biology, over the last, say, 50 years in particular, um, you know, the, the computational biology and so forth. So uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to deny that, that modeling is, is, is useful. So it's useful to, to build models of, say, uh, mathematical models of uh, uh, like axons, to, uh, and you can model them as wires, and you can predict sort of how electric currents move and so forth, and that, that, that's useful. But when you try to model um, a, a, you know, a cell or an organism, you run into this, this complexity uh, a problem. Okay? Um, uh, so the, 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 the second uh, quote here is, is this Edward Doherty, who is a, uh, uh, a mathematician and an engineer. And he argues based on you know, the weirdness of sort of quantum mechanics, like, well, these mathematical relationships, you know, we, we can predict to you, I don't know how, how many orders of, of uh, how many decimal places you can uh, get accuracy. So that's real, let's not worry about what, it, what, what, the, what the thing is, right? Um, and and so, so we should translate this as, uh, to, to all branches of science, and so that, that really scientific knowledge is, as he says, Understanding in the form of intelligibility is neither necessary nor sufficient for scientific knowledge. I say, who cares if we can really understand what the thing is, as long as we can predict what it's going to do, right? And he says, you know, the sole criterion for the validity or truth of a scientific theory is concordance between predictions derived from the theory and corresponding observations. Right? Um, it's interesting, you know, that he then he has a book, uh, a couple books, and he, you know, he he he's he's struggling with that if this is your scientific epistemology, this is what scientists should do. It doesn't really work in biology. Uh, and, and he's struggling with, well, then how, what do we do with biology? Because that the, the, the uh, ability to make predictions based on the present state of an organism and so forth is, is, um, is, is not, not easy. Right. Um, and, that, that doesn't keep you know so biologists from using mathematical models and modeling things mathematically. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is that when they do this, particularly in biology, you have to simplify. You have to grossly simplify and make assumptions. And when you do that, you lose sight of what you're actually. You have the danger of losing sight of what you're actually looking at, right? Um, and so um, Maxwell made this point, he said, the first process, therefore, in effective study of science must be one of simplification and reduction of the results of previous investigation to a form in which the mind can grasp them. The results of this simplification may take the form of a purely mathematical formula. In this case, we entirely lose sight of the phenomenon to be explained, and though we may trace the consequences of given laws, we can never obtain more extended views of the connections of the subject. And so when we, you know, if there are only a few relationships, you know, you might be able to, you know, not lose as much, but when you have as many relationships as you have, you know, if you go back to the prokaryotic cell, you, you, it's not just the molecules, it's the relationships between them and the way they interact in nonlinear ways that, and, and, and the stochastic nature, as I'll talk about with some cell behavior, that makes it very, very difficult. Um, and, and, and often you, you have a model and, it, oh, the model's working right, but then you try to say, well, what does that tell me about what's going on in the real world? And you're like, well, not, not that much. Um, and an example of this is on the next slide. And this uh, example, the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. Okay, so this is a, a relatively simple uh, equation. 
that's used to model the selection um, or uh, natural selection of different uh, alleles or genotypes, right? So the Hardy-Weinberg equation is just a way to, um, the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium is just a way to go from, if I know the allele frequencies in a genotype, I can tell you what the genotype frequencies are under certain idealized conditions, right? But, yet, but these conditions then, um, if you see a deviation from what the observed and the expected, you can then say, well, there's a, this amount of selection going on, right? So it's a way of modeling a selection, okay? So let's just take, for example, you have two alleles at a, a gene, you have big A and little a, okay? So then there's gonna be three genotypes, right? So you got the two homozygous and then you got the heterozygous, right? Um, so the Hardy-Weinberg equation makes certain assumptions, right? So it's making the assumption that the change in the alleles is only going to be due to selection. So that means you have to assume that there's no migration of, of, of individuals in and out of your population, there's no mutation going on, and I mean, this is most important, there's no drift going on, which is just sort of the change in gene frequency that happen just because you're not taking an infinite sample of your population. So the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium only holds when you make an assumption that you're looking at an infinite population, right? which obviously doesn't correspond to, to reality. Now, it's a useful tool for teaching undergraduates or even modeling things to show, okay, what you know, the levels of selection here. But because it doesn't take into account those real-world things, it, it misses a lot. And there's other things it doesn't take into account as well. So it, it treats genes as discrete units that don't interact with anything else, right? which we know is not anywhere near true. Okay? Um, it also um, uh, assumes that you know, when you're looking at uh, the, the, the equilibrium, that the genotypes, those three genotypes down there, their fitness is only influenced by that allele, right? And then everything else you just sort of ignore. Um, and so th th these assumptions that it makes are ex uh, disengage it from, from, from reality. So you could use it to, so I can say, okay, well, let's look at the genotype frequency in generation one, I can calculate that. Let's look at the genotype frequency in generation two, and I can calculate, okay, well, there's been this much selection going on, but under those idealized circumstances, which are never going to be really applicable to what's going on in the real world. Okay. So you have these, these, uh, these, these issues with models in, in biology. Um, and these, these, because of that, you have these issues with predictions. So um, uh, Dr. Kim had some nice videos of, uh, you know, the galaxies, and uh, I have videos of fruit flies, so um, <laughs> uh, that's all I got. Uh, but I think th this, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 this was what I did my uh, graduate, uh, my PhD thesis on looking at uh, uh, using fruit flies as a model system to understand seizure disorders. Um, and um, I switched in my lab to work on uh, adult stem cells now, but I, I keep these around for sentimental purposes. And there's always some students that's interested in, in this, and so I usually have a couple students working on this, this project. Um, and so, yeah, go ahead and play the video. So what you see here um, in um, this uh, video is uh, these are the flies and the, the media that they, that's their home that they, they live in, and every two weeks you take them, and they hatch out, and you switch them to a fresh vial. But I just put some into a vial and I vortex them, right? So normally if you, <laughs> normally if you do this to a fly, they just get up and they, they go away. But what you can see here is that in this video, about half the flies have gotten up there looking 
you know, doing things that normal flies do. The other half are paralyzed on the bottom. Okay. Now all of these flies have a mutation in them called TK of technical knockout is the is the name of the, the, the gene. Um, the, in Drosophila community, have very very cool names for a lot of mutations. Uh, okay, so um, you can see them having a seizure-like activity there on the bottom there now. Okay, um, and uh, so the the, the this. Uh, all of these, whether the flies are there at the top, you can stop the, 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 the video at the point, uh, whether the flies at the top that didn't have seizures and the ones at the bottom that did have seizures, um, all have the same mutation. Okay? And what I've done is uh, I fed them a, a, a drug that at this concentration usually is going to um, uh, fix, uh, when you give them this concentration of drug, 50% roughly will have seizures and 50% won't. Okay, so I have statistical knowledge that, okay, with this population of fruit flies, this mutant, this drug is going to be about 50-50, okay? So I have some probabilistic knowledge there, but what I'm missing is, is sort of the, the, the certainty. So what I don't know, and this applies to medicine, is if I take any individual, so if I go back into the other vial, and grab one of those flies. I don't know whether that's going to seize or not. It's not going to seize 50, have 50% of a seizure. It's either going to seize or it's not. Right? So because I know the probability of the population, it doesn't tell me anything about any of the individual flies there. And it's the same problem that you find in medicine. When you come in and the doctor says, well, you have cancer, okay, well, here's a treatment, you know, what's the success rate? Well, it's 50%, you know, okay. So I'll get 50% better at least. You know, people think that, right? But in reality, it's, Usually, some of you are going to go to remission, and the other half are not. Right? Um, and, and so there, there is this inherent uncertainty, particularly at the individual, um, uh, the individual level there. Um, and I think this, the, the, I mean, I'll come back to that point in a minute, but I also want to talk about that this, this um, uh, plays into the reproducibility crisis, I think, in, in biology. Right? So if I take these flies and uh, uh, wait a year, right? And I come back and do this experiment with these flies in a year after they've gone through 20, roughly 25 generations, right? I guarantee they won't have 50-50 anymore. There'll be something different. It might be 100% will respond to the drug now. It might be only 20%, and why? Well, the genetic background of this population is gonna change over time, right? And with seizure susceptibility, it's one of these things that's affected by many, many, many genes, right? And so the background that this mutation is in is going to affect whether this treatment is, is, is going, to, going to work, right? Um, and so if I ship these flies off to another lab that wants to study them, right? These flies, you know, the background's gonna change over time. And so their results are gonna be slightly different than my results, right? Um, and if they use slightly different food, they use a pure yeast in their food. So that's going to change. Because we know the diet affects seizure susceptibility, right? And then there's also sort of stochastic, and I'll talk a little bit about these in a couple of slides, stochastic changes that happen during development. And so the nervous system of one fly might be developed slightly different than another's, and now those things can be triggered by certain environmental cues, right? So there's so many things that can vary that it's almost impossible to... Um, control for all of these things, right? Now, what you might want to do, right, is, you know, say we, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, these, the, we want to be, do better prediction, right? So we want to build a model, right? So 
Right now, we just know well, 50% of them are going to work, are, are going to be cured in a sense by this drug. Okay? Well, to build a model, we have to know what parameters might affect whether they would be cured or not. Right? And let's just focus on genetic parameters. Let's say, okay, well, let's say we want to look at uh, what genes might be affected, because certainly the background, the genetic background is going to affect. So they all have the same mutation that, that seems to, to cause seizures, but there's all these other genes in the background that have different alleles. Well, let's just say there's 10 that we're interested in. Okay? We think there's 10 here based on what we, we know. Well, each of those genes, and let's assume there's two alleles for those genes, all right? All right? That means that for each one, there's three different genotypes that they could have, right? So we have 10 genes, three different genotypes. That's, I think it's like 60,000 different combinations that you could have, right? They can be homozygous for one, heterozygous for another, and so forth. So the amount of data that you would have to accumulate, the amount of sequencing of those genes you would have to do to get any real statistical power to see the effects of those 10 genes is massive, right? Um, and you might be able to do it with fruit flies, right? Uh, but you're not gonna be able to do it with humans, right? Um, and the other thing is that you're ignoring the other probably 90 genes that actually have an effect on this, right? Not to mention all the other environmental uh, factors, right? Um, and so this, this, this leads to, you know, sort of a limitation on our ability to try to model and understand and, and predict, because a lot of times we don't even know the factors that we should be putting into the model, right? We don't know exactly what genes are, are key, right? Sometimes you're lucky in certain disorders where there's one gene, right? But those tend to be rare, and it's used in most of the diseases or disorders that affect humans, you know, like heart disease and so forth, are multifactorial, not only genetic, but environmental. And so there's too much there to, um, to, 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 to change. Okay. Um, now, one of the um, other issues that, that comes into this is the stochastic nature of a lot of cell behavior. So if you think of oh, you know, the cells, you know, is, is, is sitting there ready to respond to stimuli and always puts out the same output, right? Um, well, cells have uh, you know a very uh, a dynamic uh, uh, sort of gene network, and, and and there's a lot of stochastic um, effects that affect what genes are expressed in in, in cells. So it's not necessarily they're being tr triggered by some external stimuli, but you have sort of um, sort of random fluctuations that go on in gene transcription, what's called bursting, right? And this is sort of intrinsic to different cells. Um, you might think, well, that, that's weird. It wouldn't help a cell to just have some random transcription going on in, in cells. But I think what it does is it increases so the, the ability of cells to explore phenotypic space, right? So if you have a population of cells, if some of them are doing things at random, it might actually, oh, that turns out to work, and that cell, you know, could then eventually you could have certain genetic changes could, could, could occur in that cell that could sort of hardwire that, right? Uh, and so what you see is particularly in genes that have low expression, you'll see this intrinsic bursting where if one cell just starts uh, synthesizing or uh, transcribing a real gene for five, 10 minutes at a really high rate, and another cell transcribes another gene at five to 10, and, and it's very, so you can't predict you know, uh, with any certainty which ones they're gonna be. So if you look at like well, how this would help cells, if you look at like figure A, you can just imagine that you know in uh, uh, a population of cells, uh, the the amount of a certain protein 
you know, uh, the more you have in this environment might make it better for the cell. Um, and so you have cells that have bursting, uh, the more bursting they have in that gene, the, the darker the cell. So the ones that are dark blue actually survive better than the ones that don't have bursting there. Well, you could have the opposite with the environment where not expressing that gene might be better. But the fact that you get a more of a range of phenotypes allows you to deal with the changing environment and to, to explore and experiment with that. Um, in the bottom, what you have is, is that, again, genes are not in isolation. They're usually part of a network. So if you have bursting at one gene, it might, not always, but it might be amplified through the network so you have 10, 20 genes that start to get turned on just because you have bursting at one gene because that turns on a transcription factor that activates another gene and so forth. And so what you see in certain cases in cells where you get these burstings is that you have a burst at a gene and you get this uh, uh, activation of one gene network and you get slight differentiation of the cell to, to, to one um, sort of uh, uh, phenotype and then another cell differentiates into a slightly different phenotype. So you can see here, you, you've got this bifurcation. We have some blue cells and some yellow cells. Um, and they don't necessarily take on a whole different morphology like that, but you have two distinct types of cells in the population. And, but you're never gonna know beforehand which one if you, uh, the, the, the cell is going to become because there is this, this inherent stochastic nature to it. And this is obviously going to have uh, an effect on the, the, the modeling and the predictive uh, nature of a scientific, um, or, or uh, uh, at the level of biological behavior. Okay. Um, now, before I leave this first part uh, of the talk, I'd be remiss to just want to talk about systems biology for a minute, okay? Because, um, you know, because of the complexity in biology, right, well, there's a way to, is there a way to get a grasp of this? Well, rather than looking at one gene at a time, let's look at all the genes, right? So in systems biology, you try to understand the complexity of the thing by looking at the whole, right? Now, you can never truly look at the whole of the cell because you know, it's all, it's all, there's too much there. But let's look at all of the genes, right? Let's look at all the proteins. Let's look at all the metabolites that are in the cell. And then you might be able to see patterns. But again, you're only going to see patterns and probabilities, right? And so what you see here is a systems biology paper where they, they, they took uh, cortical samples of people right after they died at different ages, right? So it goes from, uh, I think, 20 to up to 100 and something there. And they're looking at gene expression. So on the y-axis would be um, all the genes that they looked at, okay? Um, and you can see a pattern there, right? So blue would mean that the gene is underexpressed, and red would mean it's overexpressed compared to the average. And as you can see on the top, there's a set of genes that as you age, get turned on to a greater extent. Right. On the bottom, you can see a set of genes that, as you age, get shut off. Right. So you're able to see this global pattern, but again, there's going to be a lot of exceptions. So you can see at the top, um, if you start at the top right, it's like three over, you see a, um, an individual that's got a lot of blue there, and they're like 90. So they have these genes that never get turned on as they age. They, they're an outlier. So what is it about them? Right. You have um, a person right there in the middle, 61, who still looks like their gene expression looks like they're really young, like they're in their 20s, right? So there's an in, intrinsic amount of variability in this. So you can see patterns, okay? And maybe this is a pattern that I can predict the age or the aging of a person, but it's only going to work on average. There's certain people it's not going to work on. And then the underlying question, what does it mean, right? Do those genes, are they the effect of aging? 
or they have a cause of aging. The fact if you went in and I, I, I turned off those genes on you, would you age <laughs> right faster? Right, and, and this doesn't answer that 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 question. Okay, um, so system biology also can help you appreciate, I think, the the level of um, sort of the, the gene fluctuation, the stochastic nature of gene expression as well. Okay, so in this um, uh, experiment. What they are looking at is comparing uh, gene expression of two different uh, cells on the top. So they're taking two oocytes, right? So there's one oocyte on the x-axis, one on the y-axis. And if their gene expression was the same, you would have you know, a, a line right down the middle and a correlation of one, right? Um, and there's a pretty good correlation, but if you look at the bottom left, right, those are the genes that are expressed at relatively low levels, right? And what you see is that there is not a very good correlation at all between the two oocytes, the two individual cells. So there's a significant difference. These are the same cells, same uh, oocytes taken uh, from the same, I believe these are my, uh, yeah, they're taken from the same organism. Uh, and uh, you have this bursting of these genes that are at the uh, low level of expression. So you get two different of sets of gene activation going on. So if you want to predict what's going to happen with this oocyte, right, you, you have two distinct entities that, that, that are going to have two distinct outcomes. Now interestingly, and this is the way most experiments are done, you miss this on the bottom, right? So on the bottom what you have is you have a cell culture. You have two different cell cultures. And so you take that cell culture and you take all, you take all the RNA from all of those cells and average it out, right? And what happens is you don't see that intrinsic variability at the cellular level because it averages out now, right? And so often you, 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 you don't see that in systems biology because you look at a big population, right? Rather than looking at the, at the uh, individual um, level. Okay. Um, so uh, I think, I just don't have my, Okay, yeah, um, so I'll get to this in a second, so I have to switch, but I, I, I think one, uh, you know, one thing that, that, about this, it's not just an academic question or an esoteric question, because there are, particularly nowadays, with the ability to do genetic testing, right? So now you can actually um, take uh, the mother's blood, identify the fetal cells that, that cross into the mother's blood, and you can do gene um, sequencing and so forth to, to try to figure out you know what disorders the, the fetus might have, right? And a lot of people have this understanding. Oh, there's a gene. My 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 kid has you know this gene which uh, gives them a 50% or a 70% chance of having X, right? Uh, but again, that doesn't tell you anything about what that individual person is going to have. And so there's a lot of particular issues I think with genetic counseling where they use this statistical or probabilistic information in the wrong way. And it's going to happen even more and more, particularly because now with genetic testing, it has no, you know, before with genetic testing 10 years ago, you really had to put the fetus at risk, and so a lot of mothers wouldn't do that. Now if you can just take the mother's blood, there's going to be even more genetic testing. And even the, you know, you could send off a, a sample of your DNA, and they'll tell you, you know, oh, you're at high risk of heart disease, and this, and this, and that, and so forth. But a lot of that is based on statistical probabilities um, that they gave from an entire population on a few genes, right? So it's not even really accurate, right? Because there's a lot of other genes and everything they don't take into account because they just don't have that in their model. And so th th there's a lot of claims that's, that the biologists or scientists will make that actually don't 
fit with the, 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 the data. Okay, no, I'll skip that slide. Um, okay, so what I want to uh, switch to now in the last, uh, you know, uh, let's see, uh, 10, 15 minutes here. I don't know what time. 10, okay, great. Um, is to talk about the naming problem, okay? And so this is, um, you know, a, 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 an issue of uncertainty um, in, in, in biology as well. And it also has real world implications, I think, okay? So if we look at, um, you know, what is a gene, right? How do you identify a gene? Now, so scientists, biologists, nobody, I think, would disagree that genes exist, but they're saying, what is it? And what makes it distinct from something else in the cell, right? So initially, you know, the, the, the traditional definition at first was the basic unit of hereditary, right? Well, that doesn't tell you too much. It's not very helpful, and it's wrong because there are other units of hereditary that are not genetic. So you have epigenetic, you have cultural um, inheritance, behavioral inheritance, and so forth. Um, and, and so that doesn't work. So let's go to the second one. You say, well, it's a DNA sequence that's transcribed in the cell and encodes information to make a protein, right? That's traditionally what a lot of times you learn in high school, okay? Well, there's a lot of genes that are turned on and are never turned into a protein. They're just used, they're just their RNA is used, right? Or um, so ribosomal RNA, small uh, microRNAs, and so forth. So that, that definition doesn't work, right? And we'll say, well, a DNA sequence that's transcribed for use in a cell, right? Well, maybe that'll work, right? right? Well, it turns out, like, um, as we learn more about transcription, if you look at the human, a human cell, almost the entire genome is transcribed. Right? Both strands, right? Uh, the sense and anti strands. So it's not as if, oh, here's the gene, that gets transcribed, this is not a gene, it doesn't get, almost the whole thing does, right? And there's all this processing that goes on to cleave things out. It's not clear what all of these things are. So it becomes even more difficult to distinguish exactly what a gene is, right? And so, um, this is, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the other thing about genes is they don't exist and don't work in isolation, and often they work uh, to, to be an effective gene. It works with different portions of the genome. The gene is not distinctly right here. A piece of it's here, another piece is over here, another piece is over here, and they interact with all these other things, and if they didn't interact, they wouldn't act as a gene, right? And so it's a dynamic interaction. It's hard to pull it out by itself. He says, a crucial point with respect to the definition of genes is that genes are not autonomous, independent agents, as was implicit in much of the early treatment of genes, and which indeed remains potent in much contemporary thinking. Right? Rather, they exert their effects within or as the output of complex systems of gene interactions. Today, we term such systems genetic networks or genetic regulatory networks. Right? And so I think if your definition of a gene is not accurate, you're, you're more likely to fall for bad metaphysics, you know, like Dawkins' idea. If you think a gene is a distinct entity that controls things, rather than seeing a gene as being under control of the cell and in an interaction with all these other things in the cell, which that's a better understanding of what a gene is, uh, it does affect the way I think you, you see what a cell is and what a cell does, right? Um, but it's still difficult to identify what a gene is and to, to delineate this is what a gene is. And so here's a definition, this is a paper called the evolving definition of the term gene, and they propose the definition. Um, and I won't read it, but you can read it and you can see it's pretty nebulous and ambiguous. Um, it, it, it's trying to be inclusive, and in being inclusive, it, it, it opens up 
the possibility that things that aren't genes could be um, classified as genes, and also at uh, least uh, certain things like uh, retrotransposons that are found in the human genome that aren't part of gene regulatory networks, but actually seem, particularly during development, they're moving around, might have a physiological benefit to the organism. Whether those are genes or not in this definition or any definition is not clear. So there's always going to be gray areas around the, around the edges. Okay? The last thing is the species uh, problem. And most people are familiar with this, that there is no unambiguous way to identify a species in the real world. Right? Now, that doesn't mean that species don't exist. It just means our definitions of them depend upon, uh, and this is what Dr. Watson was talking about with chemistry, the definition of a bond, it depends on what are you trying to get at, right? So a um, uh, ecologist might, uh, versus an evolutionary biologist, are often trying to get two different things, so they might want to use two different criteria for defining what a species is, right? So normally, you know, you have two, the two main definitions, the morphospecies definition, which is that species share certain physiological traits, Right, a little bit beyond that because it might be share certain genetics or behaviors or morphologies, right? So that's one. But again, there's no you have to make judgments over how much of a morphological difference is is uh, is enough to say that's a distinct species. There is no objective criteria. It requires the judgment of the scientists who are looking at it to see where the boundaries are. The second one that people thought, oh, this is a little bit more objective, is say the biological species definition, interbreeding natural populations that are reproductively isolated from other such groups. Okay. Um, well, this is also a bit subject. First of all, it doesn't work on most organisms. Most organisms don't reproduce sexually, and most are fossilized. And you have no idea what they, you know, what you don't know much about their reproductive behavior anyway. Uh, but also, you know, in, um, <clears throat> reproductively isolated, how much reproductive isolation is enough? You know, that, uh, you know, and, 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 and so that can be a judgment call as well, right? Um, so even with humans, right? So if we look with these two definitions, there's, a, there's ambiguity. Uh, so if you go to the next slide. So Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthals, neanderthals and humans, it's known that they interbred, right? But they're classified as two distinct species, right? So why is that, right? Well, someone has to make a judgment uh, about that, about the, 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 the distinct nature. So in this case, morphology, behavior, temporal differences seems to most uh, uh, hominid paleontologists would argue that Neanderthals are distinct species than modern humans, even though it's clearly found bones that are one-eighth Neanderthal and seven-eighths human, which indicates that not only they interbreed, but they were able to be fertile and for a while go to third generation. All non-Africans carry Neanderthal DNA, right? one to two percent of your DNA is Neanderthal origin and so forth. So you can see that there's, that there's a blurry line here of where you draw the species and the definitions don't actually give you the exact boundaries. Uh, morphologically, you also run into problems. Okay, So if you look at um, these fossils here, um, which one? C and D. Okay. If you look at C and D, these are two uh, uh, f uh, fossils that um, the one that C is 300,000 years old. It's um, the oldest human um, uh, fossil remains that have been found. 
and is found in Morocco. And then to the right is a, a human fossil. It's, I think it's from uh, like 30,000 years ago. It's very similar to your skull if you've looked at yours right now, okay? But if you notice these two, there's actually, if you, if you look at the volume's the same, right? So they each, the, the volume is about three cans of Coke, which is what your brain is, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, <laughs> but if you look at the shape, the, 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 the brain in, in, in C is flatter, right? It's got a distinct shape, whereas in D, it's more globular and rounded. So the morphology of the brain is quite distinct. So the open question, is this, should this be considered a homo sapiens? Should, or, or is this a, is it just a local variant of homo sapiens? Is it distinct? Well, without being able to probe other questions about its behavior, its reproductive behavior, you know, the capacities it has, it's very difficult to, to tell whether it is or it is not. And so you, again, you see at the edges, it's very difficult to classify things. It's not to say there aren't species, but it is difficult to find those boundaries, right? And this also has practical implications, too, because particularly with biotechnology, right? So there are a lot of things that are being created now where we're going to have to make judgment. Is this a homo sapien, right? Is this human, right? So um, if you, you know, just suppose, I mean, if you took a, you know, right now you, you do cloning, you, know, you take a site, you remove the DNA, you throw in the nucleus of a somatic cell. But what if we took a, chimpoocyte, removed the DNA, and threw in a human nucleus in there. It's got human DNA, but it's in the context of a chimpoocyte, right? Is that homo sapien, right? right? And I'm not recommending we do this, but I, I, this is where I think bio, certain biotechnology you know, might be moving to try some of these experiments. And I don't think, I'm not a genetic reductionist, to say, well, that's definitely human just because it has human genes. Those genes are now in the context of a, uh, another primate oocyte, which is going to control development in possibly totally different way. I think it's probably neither, right? but I have no idea because you don't actually see, if you take a chimera where you're mixing cells from two different organisms, which are already being done. You're taking human cells, mixing them into a other primate embryo, right? What do you have? How many human cells do you have to put in there until the thing actually is going to take on the characteristics of uh, and be, be human? There was a paper that um, came out last year with mice where they took uh, stem cells, they differentiated some into um, uh, placental tissue and some they left uh, sort of undifferentiated stem cells and they put the two together and had them interact with a dish and the thing developed through almost gastrulation, where you have an anterior, posterior, and you start to see the tissues develop and so forth. Is that a mouse? I mean, it looks kind of like a mouse, and it's sort of developing that way. And then, you know, it, it hasn't been published yet, but it was uh, announced in being about, uh, uh, about six weeks ago, people were doing a similar thing with human cells, right? Okay, so is that uh, a human? That they, they used induced pluripotent stem cells, so they, they didn't use embryonic stem cells, they were using induced pluripotent stem cells, took some, and tried to layer three different tissue types together to mimic sort of what the embryo looks like at a certain stage and then allowed it to develop. They, they only went 14 days before they uh, ended the experiment and they haven't published it yet, but they argue, is that, you know, a uh, uh, human thing? So these edges here, I think the biotechnology is gonna force us to, to try. This uncertainty um, at, at leads to real world questions that, that, that are important. So. Now, um, 
so this quote here, and, and again, I, I won't read it, but it goes back to what, what Lori had in her presentation about what is a, a chemical bond. It's like, yeah, there, there's, there's differences here, and we have to learn to live with some of the ambiguity, and to, uh, and it's the same sort of thing with, with, with species. We have to learn to live with the ambiguity and use different criteria under different circumstances, right? And, and use those um, for um, the, the, you know, the, 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 our definitions themselves serve what we're trying to uncover about nature, right? So an ecologist who's trying to do species preservation is going to be more interested in one type of species definition than, like I said, an evolutionary biologist because they have different aims and different goals um, in, in, um, in their research. Right? So, um, so in summary, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in biology, right? um, but there are certain things that we do know and we can know with relative certainty. But a lot of times it's very context dependent. So we go back to the flies that I was talking about, right? So I can say with relative certainty that this gene actually affects neuron excitability in fruit flies, right? And I can say this drug affects neuron excitability in fruit flies, at least in this population of fruit flies, right? But I can't necessarily extrapolate that to humans, right? And that's one of the problems with translational research. Most translation never actually makes it into the clinic. Um, so that, that, that our knowledge of this gene, say, so, well, this gene does X, you know, okay, is very context dependent, right? It might only do that or have this effect in this system, in this organism, or in this particular genetic background, right? So we have to be very specific about, you know, our, 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 what we're certain of or what, what we do know in biology is very, very context specific. Right? Um, and I think, you know, it, 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 that, that, okay, well, biology is very context specific, the organisms change a lot, but the fact that organisms change um, and that they are autonomous agents that actually learn from their environment, not only learn from their environment, they can modify themselves to learn and then behave differently, is actually an important aspect of biology and evolutionary biology, because without that, we wouldn't have evolution in the way that we have it, where you have surprising things that occur that you couldn't have predicted from what was before, because things emerge that you've never seen before, right? Which means you're not going to be able to predict those things, and without that, the evolutionary process isn't going to work. So, just a final thought, and this is from Stuart Kaufman, um, um, the essay he wrote about uh, sort of the end of Galileo. He was sort of uh, uh, pushing back against this idea that we can predict everything, we can mathematize nature, and so forth. And he says. The incapacity to foresee has profound implications. And he's talking about this from an evolutionary biological perspective. Okay? And I don't, think, I don't think evolution is entirely random or chance, but there are certainly this need for so, so certain uh, novelty that you need in that process. He said, in the physicist Murray uh, Gell-Mann's definition, a natural law is a compact description beforehand of the regularities of, of a process. But if we cannot even pre-state the possibilities, then no compact descriptions of these processes beforehand can exist. So if we can't even pre-state what is the possibility that this, you know, if you go from a single cell organism to a multicellular organism, if you've never encountered a multicellular, we don't even, that possibility doesn't even exist. We don't even know what then that, that can do. We can't, we, we can't figure out the possibility of that. This means something astonishing and powerful, liberating. We live in a universe, biosphere, and human culture that are not only emergent, but radically creative. We live in a world whose unfoldings we often cannot prevision, pre-state, or predict. A world of explosive creativity on all sides. This is a central part of the new scientific worldview. At least his, 
he's arguing the, the scientific worldview. But I think there's a, there's a balance there that it is not that we can't predict certain things, but that we can only predict under certain situations, and we can't predict with certainty because of the inherent novelty that is there in sort of biological systems, sort of hardwired into those. So, thank you. Yeah, so I, I don't think there is any uh, uh, ability necessarily to predict when that is, is going to happen because you have a system where you change one gene, you can get radical changes if it, if, because it's nonlinear, these systems. You can change a lot of genes and have almost no effect, okay? And the other thing is that you don't want to be a, a genetic reductionist about this. If I have a bacteria and I just keep changing the genes, I'm pretty much, you know, always going to you know, have the back, I, I'm, I'm putting genes into a bacteria, into a bacterial context, right? So it, it, it takes, it, it, you know, if I take uh, a bacterial gene um, and uh, uh, to, to get to a eukaryotic context, right, it's more than just changing genes. You actually need to have a fusion of two cells, right? You need to have organelles, mitochondria, which is not a single gene change, right? There is a bigger holistic change that has to occur for that. And the same thing, you know, uh, going from single cell to multi-cell, it might not be you know, changing genes, but changing genes in a couple cells where they start to interact in different ways. You know, and it's one of those novelties I don't think you can predict. And you actually have to see what nature does. It's like the only way to tell what is this thing if I do, you know, that, that experiment, you know, the human DNA in a chimp embryo would be to see what happens, right? It might not develop at all, which would probably be the case, but, you know, it, it, a lot of this is, there's no real way to predict. So, I'm curious, so there's a concept in sort of, I think it's come up, but, that Aristotle uses, because, uh, yeah, so Aristotle, not knowing any way the complexity of, uh, exactly how complex biology is, still has this notion of all physical things being like the natural world being corruptible, being contingent, and so he, he denies the possibility of like forward prediction, right, that like given a certain state, there's no necessary Yeah. 
Right, and, I, and talk about that with, with the fruit flies. That is, it is like, so once I see one that doesn't have a seizure, so I know something that drug must have done something to the cell, and I have an idea, you know, based on what we've looked at, that oh, there's a certain ion channel that now is no longer expressed at the same level. Okay, and and, and so, so so you know, I'm, that's how most biological research is really done: is looking backwards. Okay, here's what I see. How did I get here? Right, that backward and that. Most biologists don't develop mathematical predictions of what's going to happen. They see an effect, knock out a gene, oh, this happened, okay, why did that happen? Okay, what must have changed? Oh, this network, because that's how, you know, but again, this is very context uh, dependent in, in that, but that's how I think knowledge has gotten in biological sciences for the most part. Thanks for the talk. Um, I'm wondering if you could give an example of where and biologists might classify a species differently? Do you have like a go-to? Yeah, I, I think for ecologists, it's so much has to do with uh, like uh, uh, conservation biology is the gene pool, right? And so they are really concerned about the biological species definition to almost the exclusion of anything else, right? So as long as there's gene flow, there's enough gene pool, that's what they're more concerned about. Um, whereas a, a biologist uh, or, or say an evolutionary biologist might not be as concerned about that because they're more looking to see, okay, how similar are these two things? Can we call them the same species? Um, and uh, whereas, you know, isolated populations of, uh, uh, say, you know, there's an example is like elephants in Africa, there's savanna ones and ones that live in the sort of the jungle. And the big question, you know, um, is are they genetically connected, right? And so that would be something that a conservation biologist would be more concerned about, whereas an evolution biologist would say, no, they're too distinct. Okay, occasionally they, they share genes, but this one's so morphologically distinct that I'm going to call that a different species. So I don't really care if they are, not that they don't care, but that's not the primary, how do I conserve these elephants, right? Uh, when we look at the phylogenetic tree bacteria archaea in eukarya, and we have a one root, uh, so we are going backward. There's just like same origin over the you know, life. Did I teach that? I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you think. Especially there are a lot of similarities, and something weird like amino acid, they are all, everything that is used have one kind of parallelity, that kind of but there's no way, no, as far as I understand, there is no special reason why there has to be left-handed, but they are all left-handed, not right-handed. But yeah. in nature, they actually exist, right? Yeah. But for life, it's all left-handed. So how, what do you, I mean, how would you explain that? Or yeah, no, no, I think that, 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 that points to that, that eventually, you know, the, the uh, the, the original, and usually the, the theory is that there's an original population of protocells. So normally, and it's, you see this over and over in evolution. So if you look at like hominid evolution, you see all these different hominids popping up and then eventually, you know, a couple win out, right? The same thing, you have these protocells that are all doing all kinds of different things. Um, they start sharing information, there's lateral gene transfers. You have this community of cells rather than, a, and, and not cells, like protocells. And out of that community, they swap and share and hybridize. And the thing that wins, that actually is the best, just happens to be one that uses the L-chiral amino acids, right? And so that, because that, and then the other ones just are, all the cells get out-competed, right? 
um, and, 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 and that gives rise to you know, the archaea, the bacteria, and eukaryotic cells, right? But the idea, again, there isn't evidence, necessarily good evidence for this, other than that we know there's a lot of lateral swapping of genes going back and forth all the time, even now, amongst bacteria. And we've assumed that maybe that, uh, first principles, it seems like that would happen even more frequently in less developed protocells. Uh, because they have fewer genes, so they're more likely that, to be benefit from grabbing a gene from another organism like that. I just want to have a question about um, when you say we can't predict biological things, do you mean um, it's just that we can't currently predict them, or do you mean yeah, I, I in think principle we can't, we never could, even if we took 100,000? I think we can't predict with certainty, right? So we have certain ability to predict, right? Um, it, but but to, to have sort of certainty, uh, the, the amount of certainty is going to be relatively low, I think, for most uh, sort of interesting questions, right? Because of the inherent complexity of it. So we can't model enough of the relevant factors that affect the outcome, right? So if I wanted to figure out whether this drug works on heart disease, right, and so forth. Um, the, to be able to predict who's it gonna work on and who's it not gonna work on, there are so many factors that we're always gonna have uncertainty. We'll never be able to walk down and I know this is gonna work on you. But is this just a, like a computational problem and in a, in a million years we'll have yeah, no, that's a big, yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, there's people that argue both sides of that. There's one, it's a computational question. The other, that there's an actual in, in inherent uncertainty in biology, partly, be, you know, and they make different arguments for this. Um, this the the nonlinear nature, the stochastic and the quantum nature, there are certain quantum effects that are known to probably rise up and might affect cell behavior. So, but there's debate about that. I and mean, there's papers about evolution, is it inherently, um, uh, unpredictable because of quantum effects that actually affect the evolutionary outcomes, or is it just because we don't have enough knowledge, right, uh, to be able to predict it? And if we did, right, um, I, 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 I would, uh, you know, think that that would never be able to, right, that there is an inherent uncertainty in the biological organisms. So is this why you mentioned um, the development of systems biology that that's been is that an attempt to overcome some of the uncertainty or to hide the uncertainty so that we can uh, isolate, so that we can isolate certain things we want to look at? Yeah, well, I think that it's trying to limit the uncertainty, right? So, you know, you say, hey, look, I don't know what genes might affect this. I'm going to look at all the genes. That way, maybe I can figure out, you know, easier what genes affect, and then I can model those, okay? But, uh, you know, like I said, because of the number of genes that are involved and the need and try to build an actual model and the data that you would need to put into that model to get out a useful answer, right, is it gets really, really high, the amount of data. So the, 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 the models can't be, effective models, it's hard to generate them. You have to simplify and only take a few genes and then that, as a result, your model is going to be less predictive. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, we do know that morphological arrangement of the brain 
track sometimes with behavioral and, and, and differences. So it's not, you know, if you found like a, uh, a, a different, uh, you know, uh, spine curvature, for example, you know, it probably wouldn't bother people. And people would be less inclined to say that it's a distinct species, right? But when you see changes in the shape of the brain, that then suggests, and nobody knows, that it's more suggestive of cognitive differences, right? And behavioral differences or capacities that might be different. And I think that is why, I don't, it's not explicitly mentioned in papers, but I think that's why that is more um, uh, troubling or more, more likely to cause controversy than, than other morphological differences. Going back to the example of the fruit flies, um, I'm wondering, is there a way to, to know that whether the fruit, fly, fruit flies are indeed having a seizure or, I don't know, maybe they're just like feeling dizzy, like, <laughs> <laughs> like after being thrown around, I guess, in their tube. Uh, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> Of the, the way that you can measure their, their seizure, and I did this in, um, in grad school, is you uh, stick electrodes into their ganglia, they'll have a brain, and they stick electrodes into their thorax. And what you do is you can measure the output in the muscles, and the muscles are spasming, and then you have activity in the, 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 the cortex, it's not cortex, in the, in the ganglia uh, that you sort of assume is this seizure-like. I mean, it's not a seizure because it, it, seizures are, but are, are, are associated with a brain and they don't have a brain, but they're ganglia, uh, you know, so it's seizure-like behavior. And, and you see, you see this, you know, uh, uh, activity in the ganglia, this uncoordinated activity in the ganglia. So, yeah. So, I guess that there is some kind of in vivo recordings, almost like analogous to, for human participants, right, you're just like hooked enough to EG equipment and monitoring their weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's similar to that, except um, I have an electrode in there, right, and I have two that I, put, I would put up here, and then you, instead of vortexing like I did there, you give them electrical current, and then they'll have a seizure, right, whereas a uh, normal fruit fly, the wild one, um, usually doesn't, unless you give it really high current. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.